0: Another episode of the Bottom Up Revolution podcast from Strong Towns. I'm your host, Rachel. Something you may or may not know about me is that I love food. I love cooking it, I love eating it, and I love talking about it. I also love reading about it. I have read many food and farming memoirs in my day, and today's guest is the author of one of those, a new release published by Island Press called "Bet the Farm: The Dollars and Cents of Growing Food in America." In it, Beth Hoffman tells the story of how she and her husband moved onto Iowa land owned by her father-in-law and began raising cattle, goats, and growing other various crops. But unlike many farming stories, this is not a romanticized tale of waking at dawn to gather eggs in your apron pocket and cooking a beautiful breakfast with homemade jam and bread and then maybe heading out to the fields to weed your lush vegetable patch. Okay, I'm exaggerating, a little bit, but that's kind of the vibe that you get from plenty of food memoirs these days, and Bet the Farm is not that. Hoffman is at times brutally honest about the hardships that she and her husband face in their farming venture, and that's with land available and a good chunk of startup money. She talks in depth about how much harder things are for farmers that don't have these resources. Bet the Farm is a personal story about Hoffman's first few years of farming, but it's also a larger exploration of small-scale farming in America, the immense hurdles to clear, the bureaucracy to wade through, the failure of government programs that are supposed to be helping farmers, the challenges of making the math work out. In this interview, and in her book if you read it, you're going to notice a lot of parallels between the challenges of farming and the challenges of towns in America. For both, plentiful land, at least in the early years of farming in America, has encouraged monocrops and commodity growing instead of smaller scale, more diversified operations that grow many different types of food that people actually eat and that can be sustained on the land and in the soil for many years. This is the same way that we've treated land in our towns as something freely available to be used endlessly for huge, repetitive monocrops, we might say, you know, big box stores, parking lots, and that's not actually what really feeds our communities. Debt is also a relevant theme here. Just as farmers must go into debt buying equipment, seeds, fertilizers, and so many of the basics just to get started, so too do cities get themselves into an endless cycle of debt just to provide basic services to their residents. Another parallel is the role of large corporations. Most farmers raising things like pigs or chickens contract out with a big company to purchase their meat. And then they're forced to accept the price that that company pays and to produce in exactly the fashion that that company requires. Independence is lost in pursuit of what's usually a meager profit. In the same way, our towns are often just groveling at the feet of corporations, doing whatever they ask, offering whatever tax breaks they want, and all for the promise of a few new jobs, maybe a new Target store, that doesn't leave them much better off than when they started. I think you'll hear a lot more parallels between the challenges of farms and towns in this interview, and you'll also hear Hoffman talk about why farms and towns need each other to survive. So here's my conversation with Beth Hoffman. Beth Hoffman, thank you for joining me for this episode of the Bottom Up Revolution podcast. I'm glad to be talking with you. Thanks for having me. So you've written this book, Bet the Farm, which explores the economics of growing food in America. And to start out with, you know, what set you on this path to farming in the first place? And what made you, you know, be motivated to do this?
1: Well, I had reported on food and agriculture for about 25 years by the time we we moved. But the actual impetus for moving to a farm um, instead of just reporting on it was that I met my husband um, when I moved to California and he was a neighbor. And within the first few minutes of meeting him, he told me how he had just been visiting the farm and how that was his plan was to move back and take over it. He had two younger kids at the time uh, that became my stepsons, and um, so we were kind of waiting until they graduated, and we decided to leave at that point. So it was an interesting transition, as as you quite could imagine, from San Francisco to Iowa. Uh, Lots of differences, but you know, after reporting on food and agriculture for that long, it really it felt. Uh, like a bit of a gift to be able to see if what I learned could be put into
0: practice. And what is the community like in Iowa where you farm? Like paint us a, a little picture of that.
1: Yeah. Well um, where we live is a very rural area. I think our, our closest neighbors maybe I don't know, there may be a quarter mile plus from us and everybody on this road John grew up with, like he went to, you know, kindergarten with the other people who are left here farming, who are his age. Then otherwise, it's mostly family. His sister lives nearby and his dad still lives on the farm. And we bought a old farmhouse about two miles up the road from the farm. You know, there's a town about five miles away it doesn't have, it has a bar, so there is some gathering together, but outside of that, there's not really much community because there's not many places to be. There's a community center, but um, not much goes on. So I would say our community is other farmers doing interesting things through, throughout the state. You know, we we um, kind of have all gotten to know each other through, Uh, different groups like the Practical Farmers of Iowa or also the Iowa Farmers Union. It's very active with alternative farming, sustainable farming. So I think we consider that our, our community more proper.
0: Yeah. Your book talks a lot about the inequalities present in farming as in so many other places in our society, how some people have this big leg up in the form of inherited land or or wealth. And I'm wondering how you have been navigating that. And what do you see of the farmers who don't have access to family owned land?
1: So like you're saying, just to kind of describe to the listeners, what what that means, um, you know, I talk a lot about in the book about the privilege we came into this with. And like you mentioned, family wealth that's built up over generations that lots of families have not been able to do, particularly farmers, uh, people of color, but farmers of color in particular. And yes, the access to the land. So, you know, I use the example in the book of when John's family came here, his great, his great grandfather, he's now the fifth generation. That same year that he first came here in 1851 was the last treaty with indigenous populations in the state, Um, you know, uh, saying that they all had to leave. They actually did not. And the Meskwaki are here alive and well and uh, are very large private landowners in the state, but that treaty had been signed. And also that same year was um, an exclusionary law that prohibited free blacks and mulattoes from actually staying in the state. So if they came in, they were supposed to leave within three days. Um, so that was the environment in which his great, great grandfather came into. And he, as a you know white man, could easily buy land. And that land has stayed within the family all these generations in large part because of programming that's been available to them and grants and loans and all different kinds of things through the USDA and and local banks. And so for people who don't have that, it's an extremely difficult thing to get into farming. If vegetable farming can be a bit easier because it can be done on a smaller amount of land. Um, but livestock needs a fair amount of land, as does, of course, row cropping. So if somebody wanted to enter as a corn farmer, as a sugarcane farmer, it's a very difficult thing to be able to purchase that land.
0: Mm-hmm. Another challenge in farming that you talk a lot about in your book um, and something that we're particularly interested in at Strong Towns is the role of debt. And at Strong Towns, we talk a lot about how uh, so many cities are in tremendous debt. And I know that for people that want to get started farming, even if they have have land to start with, they typically have to go into a lot of debt to buy, um, you know, machinery and supplies and things. How, how has debt been this cycle that you're seeing farmers around you and, and you yourself dealing with and like, how are people navigating that?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, it's important to remember that that's been part of American agriculture from the start. So, uh, from the start of, you know, white, white people coming to this country, our first colonies were colonies that were created to grow raw materials and export them. Two colonies, you know, two empires around the world. So that kind of lending farmers money in order to grow the crops has been this um, a, a tradition really in in farming since our earliest days. And what happens is. You know, if you look at it from even you know vegetable or or uh, row crop production, to have the cash flow you need to put the crop in at the beginning of the season um, is incredibly expensive. Um, Things like strawberries, for example, are incredibly expensive to put in, and so farmers have to borrow money. But if you add to that this large scale automated farming um, that requires also very large machinery on top of expensive seeds. And then you um, include sprays and, and fertilizer right now is enormously expensive. So it just kind of adds up and it becomes that farmers are attempting to get ahead always. And like my Mother-in-law told, described it, and I have this, you know, description in the book where she talks about how it's just felt like getting on a treadmill that you really couldn't get off, and in the the good years, all you're doing is attempting to make up for the bad years, or um, going out and buying that equipment you've put off, or. Um, Fixing the broken tractor, whatever it happens to be, it's very rare that there's like money left over after all of that in that situation. Um, so the debt becomes just a cycle that farmers can't get out of because it because it's also so expensive to do some of these things. What else would you do? You know, it's not like if you have if you put in a um, million dollars to build a poultry facility or a hog facility. What are you going to do if you decide not to do that? You're stuck in that game.
0: Something that I had known a little bit about but learned a lot more from your book is the the lack of like real independence that it seems like family farmers have. Um, I definitely had this vision of like the, you know, I, I think you use these words in your book, the rugged individualist farmer who, you know, is like milking his cows every morning and choosing what to grow and like really proud of of what he's doing, but actually a lot of family farms are following this strict set of protocols about how to yeah set up the hog building, what to feed them, all this stuff because they're working for a larger corporation how are you are you trying to like push back against that with your own farm
1: Well, I guess you know just to describe that to people um, what's what's happened is is that. It makes a lot of sense because you have so much debt to contract a farm. So you in advance contract with a company for your soybeans, for your hogs, whatever sort of thing. And so, you know, generally about what you're going to get paid and you don't have to deal with the fluctuations of the market It's a really important part of the puzzle to understand because I think when we want to make changes in the food system and say – let's say we we don't want hog facilities, right? I certainly don't want one across the road from me. And if we don't want it, we have to understand why it is that people putting it are doing this. You know, it's not because they love the stench of a hog facility. It's because it guarantees income to them. It's not a lot of income, but it does guarantee it, and we have to understand that. So for us, it's interesting because sustainable farmers they also need um, some some kind of assurance that they're going to make money at the end of all of this hard work, and so a lot of them do things like CSA boxes. If you think about that, it's this sort of form of contracting where you uh, the community agrees to pay you up front, and then you receive a certain amount of the food, you know, each time and for us it's a really great thing cuz we have grass finished beef as our our main our main uh, agricultural endeavor it makes sense for us to be working with either direct to consumers so having those people sort of ready in the in the wings for when when the cattle are ready and also wholesalers like people who are selling direct to consumers who are working more on the marketing and have Uh, you know, can, can handle more animals than, than just their own. So there is a form of sort of mm, contracting, but the very important part of it is, is that farmers have to maintain the ability to set the price because when the price is being set for you by that one company who's, who's in the area who buys corn or buys cattle, Oftentimes, ranchers don't have anybody else but that one customer, and that one customer sets the price and tells you, well, that price is going to actually be below your, your the cost of your production, and there's absolutely nothing you can do about that. So it's important for farmers to retain that ability. And for us, working directly with consumers or with these kinds of wholesalers, that we work very tightly with we can set the price we can come up with something that makes sense for us and that's key
0: i know that finding ways to process food whether it's yeah beef or you know other animal products or you know potentially processing like vegetables into other things i know that that is a challenge there's a lot of regulations around who is allowed to do that and what scale it can be done at Is that something that you guys have like figured out a a good approach to? Have you found like good processing options in your area or is that still a a big challenge?
1: This is a whole chapter in the book about our cattle trying to find a processing for our cattle. And when the pandemic hit, um, what ended up happening is, is that those giant processors that people were contracting with kind of slowed down or shut down the process and just And everything got backlogged. So people who had animals that were ready, had nowhere to bring them. And they started realizing very quickly, like, "Uh oh, we're gonna have to figure out local markets instead of these giant multinational markets um, to sell this beef. And so all of the processing got even more backed up than it was to begin with. So it, it's always been problematic. Now it's twice as problematic because there's so many more um, people trying to do these processes uh, locally in small, smaller scale slaughterhouses or meat lockers. For us, when we started calling, and this was our first time around, we started calling up and um, we were immediately told that it was like, more than a year out, we had to book and we were just floored. We 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 couldn't imagine how we could do that, first of all, because we wouldn't know how which animals would be ready and how many and when that far out. And we also had animals that were ready. So we've ended up finding a processor by us. Um, they're about 45 minutes from us. That we've really enjoyed working with um, because they have set their schedule so they'll only take reservations six months in advance. And within this sort of community of sustainable grass-finished beef people, um, there's also a lot of back and forth like with list serves and stuff. So if people have open spots somewhere, they get to their time they booked and they don't have enough cattle or hogs or whatever – they can kind of tell everybody else in the list serve. It's very problematic. Um, I but I would say you know we we just passed a law in Iowa to help uh, give more money to small scale butchery. But at the at the business level for those um, those small scale slaughterhouses too, that business is a really hard one too because you have to have employees, which, you know, rural communities that don't have many people left often struggle to find good employees in places, you know, add to that the problems with employment right now. And, you know, you, you also have problems where meat is seasonal. So you have everybody trying to book for the same times, and then large gaps in business where nobody's showing up to process meat. So, as a business model, it's a very difficult one as well.
0: Yeah, it certainly sounds like having connections in your community has been a big part of of making things work for you and for your family.
1: Yeah, yeah. You, do. I mean, it's it's like anything. Though it's it's all about who you know, I think, and trying to learn from each other. In this case, it's very it's a very important part because there's a lack of resources otherwise. There's not many people at the USDA offices, for example, who can help you with that process. So it has to come from other
0: farmers. So we've been talking a lot about um, the challenges of farming. What have been like, some of your successes and, and things you're most proud of so far during your farming endeavor?
1: Yeah, I think our, well, first and foremost, that we've had all of our customers, um, I think every single one of us, tell us that the beef was outstanding. um, That they, some of them, you know, wrote to us and said, this was the best steak I've ever had, uh, which is like an amazing thing to be able to do, uh, you know, our first time around. But also, um, as some of your listeners might know, you know, one of the reasons why people corn finish. Um, cattle is because it does make it more marbled and often tastier. And so having that be said to us about grass finished beef has really been an amazing uh, thing. So we're, we're crazy proud about that. And I think too, we can see, you know, this year we had a bit of a drought. I mean, it wasn't California levels of drought, but we had a bit of a drought and you could see driving around where uh, other people who had cattle, they were just running out of grass and we still have grass. So we, we are able to really make use of the land and by moving the cattle all the time, the, um, the, the landscape has become very healthy and you can see it almost immediately. It's, it's amazing how quickly it bounces back. Um, and we've also added goats to our mix, which has been an amazing thing to watch because they just destroy the invasive weeds. They're like, we call them our, our herd of locusts. You put them in there and they just like denude the area of things you don't want. So it's, that's also been an amazing thing.
0: Do you use, the goats for like milk or cheese or meat or are they mostly the the cleanup guys They are going to be um, the, well their
1: offspring will be meat goats um, so we will bring some of them to market and we will probably start renting them out as like a goats on the go
0: to to be the cleanup committee So why should someone who is listening to this and you know they care about their community they care about um, having their city be a strong town, why should they also care about um, family farms? Why is that an important component of um, you know our our lives as people?
1: Yeah, it's a good question, and I, I think, you know, one of the things I would ask people to do is to really think about it themselves because, you know it's been part of our american dream our our American mythology that we have small towns, and that you can see it in the pandemic, right People just fled the cities in large numbers and went to all of the small towns, all the at least ones that had great you know internet and coffee shops. It's something that is sort of in our DNA as a nation that we want rural communities and we want them to be vibrant and to be there if we ever want to leave the city and live in them. Um and for some people we want them to be there to raise our kids and you know have sort of a more wholesome lifestyle. There's there's a lot of value in that alone, just thinking about what we really want our nation to be and having that be actualized. One of the interesting things that I learned in doing the research was how dependent farms are on the off-farm work that people do. Um, they're ninety More than 90% of farms are reliant on off-farm jobs to pay the bills for the farm, really. So if we want our food system to be... Resilient and to be strong, we want to always be guaranteeing that we will have fresh, nutritious food. Uh, we have to have vibrant towns as well, because the the farms are don't they don't make enough money really to typically run themselves. So we we need off farm jobs to also be contributing to that. So it's a it's an interesting web if you will of how the the city folks are linked to the rural communities are linked to our the food we eat and we're all sort of dependent upon each other. We can't really sell lots of great food in rural communities where there's few people. We need the cities to be buying these kinds of foods, but we need the city's support also to help keep our are rural communities vibrant?
0: What are some of your hopes for the future of family farming? Do you do you see a positive path forward? Are there um, good changes happening? I think first off,
1: to think about family farms, quote unquote, in a in a broad sense, because the term um, has been used a bit to romanticize farming and we think about the family farm like if you just say the family farm this is a family farm we tend to think like oh this is you know and if we dig deep on what that psychological picture is in our brains it's a young family holding hands in a field they're typically white and in reality most farms like 98 percent of farms are family farms quote unquote so the, the term doesn't mean a lot. And I think we have to really kind of examine how we use it and what we're using it to say. You know, it's like, uh, it's like other terms that we use to mean something else, you know. But really, like, what are we trying to get at by calling something a family farm? We're trying to say it's wholesome. We're trying to say it's diversified. It's small. That, none of that is actually true about family farms. They could be any size, any scope. any kind of farm, most farms. So I think it's first of all, you know, one of the important things we can do in the future is really start examining and understanding a lot more about what's going on in reality and not these kind of romantic visions of it. And I think that that will allow us to open the door to thinking about farming differently. Like, is it, is it better to have a family than it is to have a community of farmers working together? You know, like, let's, let's kind of think about what we really want for farms. Um, and I, I, I think that that's very possible in the future. Like, if, if changing a system starts with changing our mindsets about it and the narratives and the stories that we tell, I think that's a doable thing. I think we can kind of start there and understand what the realities are, which I talk about, you know, at length in the book, um, before we start making these kinds of changes.
0: To close us out here, what advice would you give for someone that's listening that wants to help local food, small scale farmers, whatever terminology um, we should use here to talk about uh, resilient food systems? What should people do to help make those things possible um, from their own household, even if they are not farming themselves? Yeah. Well, I think it's a great question, right? I think there's so many
1: things that we want to do right and um, so many people very well-intentioned that can make a lot of change, right? So if we work together in many different aspects as consumers, as farmers, we can make a lot of change. I think it starts with um, maybe not getting in the position where we're beating ourselves up or being self-righteous about our decisions. And you know, when I lived in the Bay Area, there was a lot of like I, fa- I shop at the farmers market kind of statements that that sound very you know it's it sounds very innocent, but it, it's kind of a self-righteous sort of opinion where you have to look at we're look we're talking about a global system here. So it's great that you have have access and opportunity. But there's so many things that we can be doing each individually in our own little way that opens that up to other people that allows us to understand about the system better. And so I would say first and foremost, whether it's through my book or other books about the topic, I think getting a realistic understanding about what's going on in farming will allow us to make changes that need to happen. We can't try and make changes when they don't address the actual problems. And I think that's that's step number one for all of us.
0: Well, Beth Hoffman, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, I just personally really appreciated reading your book. Um, it's very illuminating and did something different than I think a lot of other books that are, you know, food and farming memoirs do. So I just really appreciate that. And um, thank you for the opportunity to uh, speak with you today. Thanks so much. You asked great questions, so I appreciate it too. You can find Bet the Farm wherever you purchase books. And if you head to islandpress.org, you can use the code STRONG25 to get 25% off your copy. Thanks to everyone who was part of our member week. It was a couple weeks back, I know, um, but we just really appreciate all of you that decided to step up and become members during that week or who are ongoing member supporters of this movement. If you didn't get a chance to join during that time, you can still do that. Head to strongtowns.org membership. We really appreciate it. We're approaching the end of the year here. If you've been with Strong Towns for a while, you know that we usually take a content break for the last couple weeks of December for the holidays and for um, doing some behind-the-scenes work at the organization, so we will be taking that time off in a couple weeks. I've got at least one more episode for you this year. But in the meantime, I'm starting to work on my guests and interviews for 2022. So please feel free to email me, rachel at strongtowns.org, if you have guest suggestions. I'd love to hear from you. All right, thanks everyone. Have a great week, and we'll see you back here next week for the next episode.